Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to Sally, Gusto's Chief Product Officer. Sally has a huge brain but also truly gets people and has huge EQ. She left her well-paid and prestigious job at Unilever, taking a significant pay cut to join Gusto in early 2016. Since then, the team has grown by over 20 times from 40 people when she joined to nearly 1,000 people today. And there's no doubt that without Sally, we could not have scaled so successfully. Sally started as Gusto CFO and successfully raised huge funding rounds and professionalized the team. She then moved over to the chief product officer role to be closer to the customer and to lean into some of the most important customer prioritization questions. In this episode, Sally will talk about how she decided to join Gusto, what it took to scale the company and what she learned about culture and people. Sally, you joined Gusto in April 2016 when we had only 41 employees. Um, since then, Topline uh, has grown by 20 times. So I would love to hear what you've learned on the journey. But before we speak about Gusto, I would love to hear where you grew up. Um, sure. Um, so I grew up in the UK, uh, near Liverpool, in a small town called Formby, uh, which was on the coast. Uh, so it was a lovely place to grow up. Uh, we were able to visit the beach really easily. And how was growing up like? So I mean I, I had a very nice childhood, a uh, very stable childhood, grew up with my parents and my sister. I think the kind of key thing that I really remember is that my parents always wanted us to be doing useful things. So we didn't really watch too much TV. We were doing lots and lots of hobbies. And did they focus you on academics or? Yeah, so for sure academics. Uh, so my mum was a teacher and uh, my dad, uh, he like bought things. He was a procurement person for Liverpool University. Um, so I guess they both had quite an academic um, sort of background. Also, I think for them, uh, they themselves uh, were brought up in families which didn't at all encourage um, academics. In fact, um, my dad was told not to spend too much time reading because it would be bad for his <laughs> um, Oh, wow, okay. Uh, they very much wanted to give us uh, the sort of um, academic opportunities that they themselves didn't really have. Wow, okay, fascinating. And did you come across business or entrepreneurship in the early days via your family somehow? Literally not at all. It, it literally wouldn't have occurred to either of my parents to start a business. And so I guess uh, that uh, was quite late in my life when I kind of came across it. But but, but I, yeah, for sure, have a natural interest in, in any aspect of business. So I think even from a young age, 
I would go into a restaurant and want to understand like why they did things the way they did and how they made money from that. Wow. Okay. And Sally, I was um, a tutor in math and statistics, but I feel like you are on a whole new level when it comes to affinity for numbers. So when like, did you at an early age kind of discover that you enjoy math and numbers? So I think my first memory in relation to maths is age seven being made to stand up in front of the whole primary school uh, <laughs> because the head teacher wanted all the 11-year-olds to be able to see what they should be able to do. Um, so, wow. Um, and literally all it was was times tables. It was nothing impressive. Um, but I think I just... I, I really enjoyed and liked times tables. I, I wasn't very cool. <laughs> and what did you then decide to study? I had an affinity both for maths and for science. I just really like to understand why things work and like how things in the world around us happen. Um, so I actually went on at university to study natural sciences, which was a combination of chemistry, biology, physics and some maths. Um, but eventually um, then sort of narrowed that down to study chemistry. And how was university like? I guess uh, sort of carrying on from uh, when I was brought up, sort of always being encouraged to do lots of things. Um, I did lots and lots of different kind of, I suppose, kind of clubs and societies um, at university alongside the kind of academic learning I loved the sort of, I suppose, um, academic side of chemistry. So just sort of understanding how everything worked. But I really didn't like the labs and I wasn't very good at them. So you kind of put all the different chemicals together and it was meant to form, <laughs> say, like a white powder. And I then <laughs> like something totally different, uh, which is why I didn't go on to study chemistry longer term, because you have to spend so much time in the lab. And was it the first time you lived away from your parents? Uh, university, yeah, living away properly. I, I, I am um, it at school during the summer holidays. I sometimes used to go on archaeological digs, uh, as one does, few weeks away, yes, but not, not sort of long term living away. And how did you find that? Uh, I think I've always just loved like independence and discovering new things, new people, new cultures, and strangely, like. Doing an archaeological dig is a really, really great way to meet people from all around the world, uh, lots mm. of different cultures, and just learn new things that you'd have never thought of before. I can see that, yeah. And what was your first job after uni then? So I went to work uh, for one of the big accountancy firms, but um, it wasn't audit, which I think is what most people go on to study. Um, it was um, financial and economic consulting, Uh, which involved a combination of things like valuations, um, building best practice modeling, economic consulting, um, and also helping companies that were going through litigation kind of value um, things like lost profits um, as a result of if a company's done something that they weren't meant to do and so it was going through court. And how long did you stay for and what did you learn about yourself? I mean, I'm sure you gained kind of an analytical toolbox you benefit from today. But what kind of did you learn about yourself? Stay so for three years, um, which is basically how long you need to stay in order to qualify um, as an accountant. And as you say, build that analytical toolbox. 
but I, I really felt like, I guess, the consulting life wasn't really for me. Um, so I think there was a couple of things. Uh, one was from, I suppose, personality perspective. Um, a lot of um, people in consulting, you know, there's so much, I guess, confidence and bluster. Um, as And I, I suppose, was more interested in just kind of getting the job done. But also in consulting, you tend to get involved in problems when they're sort of already partway through and defined. Uh, you do the work and then you hand it on and you don't find out what happens afterwards. Whereas I was really keen to sort of, I guess, help businesses more closely uh, to really understand that kind of full chain, right, from what's the problem to, okay, what actually happened when we tried to make that change. That's a great motivation to change. Yeah. And where did you go then? Um, so I went to work for the AA, um, the breakdown company, uh, who at the time had recently been acquired by Centrica. Um, so pr not long before, it actually been a not-for-profit organization. Um, so they were going through a super interesting time, you know, just becoming much more commercial. Wow. So they went from non-for-profit to private equity ownership. I didn't know that. Ah, and how yeah. So in between, they were bought by Centrica, who mm -hmm. are, you know, part of British Gas had basically a few years of being part of a business, but not private equity. And then they went private equity. Right. Okay. And how did this translate into culture and what kind of did you learn about culture? So I think it was really fascinating from a cultural perspective because uh, it was really interesting to see both the benefits and the downsides of, you know, when it comes to sort of a, a what can be a relatively cutthroat private equity approach um, but one that really shows you kind of what what can be delivered, which is so often so much more than you originally think. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, they'd come in and say, we think we can slash these marketing costs in half. And, and that would seem unachievable, but actually you could find ways to do it. But at the same time, that was balanced with learning, you know, kind of what and how important it is to treat people in order to, you know, just make sure that everybody uh, is happy and motivated. Um, and so just that kind of, I guess, more caring aspect, um, which I think was in the roots of the AA from the original days as, as a not-for-profit organization. And when did you then decide to leave and why? Um, so I worked for the AA for nine years. Uh, I had a number of different roles. So originally I just joined as, a, as an analyst. But after nine years, um, I'd taken on the P&Ls, the kind of two larger parts of the business, the breakdown and the insurance business. And really, I'd learned kind of everything that I was going to learn. Because we were private equity held, none of the top leadership team were likely to leave because they were all waiting for an exit. And it would have been probably quite a lot longer before I got further opportunities there. Hence, I went to Tesco, where I thought um, I'd get lots more learning opportunities. Okay, so publicly listed company, huge quarterly pressure. How was that different culturally? Um, so I joined Tesco at a really interesting time because I think the glory days, you know, that came before where, you know, every year they, they almost kind of made more money than they thought they were going to and, and huge, huge growth was somewhat over um, and, and they were under a huge amount of pressure. Um, and that pressure, you know, resulted in quite an aggressive culture at times. And so I think Tesco was absolutely fantastic, absolutely fantastic at execution. And I learned a huge amount um, about execution, um, but also, you know, saw some of the sort of, I guess, negative sides of people being un under undue pressure. 
And what what did you enjoy the most at Tesco? And um, so I worked in Tesco.com, so the online part of the business. And I do just have a natural affinity for online. Uh, I think I always have. I gravitated to that part of the AA business as well. It was super interesting to work in a business um, in the part of the business that was still growing really fast and that was still evolving um, and developing. So we rolled out completely new business models. So things like click and collect when I was there. And I found it really great to be part of kind of building something new and innovative and, and fast and exciting. And how big was the team you managed? Um, so it was around about 30 people. Um, and that Tesco, uh, the way it works, around half of those people were in the UK and the other half uh, were in India working in our shared service center. So it was kind of really interesting challenge to do that kind of remote um, management piece. What did you learn on that journey from kind of doing stuff yourself to now being a manager, managing 30 people? Obviously, it's really challenging uh, to find that right balance between delegating mm. appropriately um, so that um, you, you don't personally become overwhelmed, um, but staying close enough to the detail where you need to. And so I think I kind of learned a lot about how to you know, ascertain which pieces I can afford to step back from um, and which pieces I need to stay close to because perhaps, you know, a team member might be struggling a little bit more. I think that's a really powerful point also for leadership, kind of deciding when to go deep and when to stay high. And then you moved from one of the most intense retail trading cultures to one of the most academic cultures, um, Unilever. How is that a fair comment to make? Yes, Absolutely. I was really attracted to Unilever for a couple of reasons. So one is, um, you know, having spent a few years uh, looking after the Tesco.com finance side of things, the natural thing to do next at Tesco would have been to move outside of .com. Um, but I really love the e-commerce side of things. And I had the opportunity to uh, move to Unilever to look after their global e-commerce side of things. I was also attracted to the opportunity to do something that was more global, um, but also culturally, I really liked their kind of attitude to people uh, and the way that they, I guess, really care for each other. And as you say, academically, you know, they do a lot of um, deep thinking. Uh, they are the custodians of some hugely valuable and powerful brands. And so I think it's an organization where it's important for them to think deeply about the things that they do because they can't afford to sort of risk these brands that they've built you know, in some cases, over 100 years building. And how did you find the role different than the Tesco role? And what was good? What was bad about it? What did you enjoy? Sure. So I think in terms of uh, what was good about it, you know, it was great to be in, a, in an environment where you could think really deeply about some of the problems that they faced. It was great to work with people who, you know, cared so deeply about how they treated each other and doing the right thing. Um, but what I really missed, I think, from Tesco was the pace, uh, you know, so that real weekly trading pulse and also being that step close to the customer because naturally FMCG companies um, are selling to retailers that are selling to uh, end, end customers. And to the point where, you know, FMCG businesses like Unilever, they call Tesco the customer and, 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 and it really, I think, does show you know, the, the length of the distance that they have between themselves and the end user. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I also love Unilever's focus on sustainability from the outside. It looks like a fantastic company to kind of gain experience from. And then how did you hear about Gusto? So Unilever Ventures uh, are one of these days um, investors, so venture capital backers. And quite early on, uh, when I got to Unilever, I was introduced to you, Timo. Uh, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so through Unilever Ventures, um, uh, over five years ago now, I sort of had heard loosely about uh, Gusto and, and also like bought boxes because I was super interested in the concept. I was also deeply interested because um, having worked for Tesco.com, I understood how hard it is for a traditional retailer to make Grocery.com delivery profitable. And so I was super interested in this kind of new innovative model that kind of might be able to do things differently. Obviously, we met. Um, and, and when that happened, A, you know, I was excited to sort of understand that you had a, a model that could genuinely be profitable at scale, which would make, mean that you could make a sustainable and great customer experience um, because you'd be able to afford to do that economically. But also just culturally, what you were building sounded super exciting. I'm I'm glad you thought so. And how did you kind of decide to leave this like hugely prestigious, super well-paid um, job at Unilever to go into this tiny startup? You know, the office was quite run down. We weren't near um, a tube station. You had to commute for quite some time to get there. We had less than 40 people, I think, um, before you joined and then 41 on the day you joined. Like walk me through the kind of thought process. Uh, I think it's fair to say, Timo, you were very persuasive. Um, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, the difference between Unilever and Gusto was immense. Unilever had a six-story high, absolutely vast entrance hall uh, before you even kind of got into the main part of their head office. Uh, Gusto, you, you opened the door and there was, you know, there was no reception desk. It was just like, oh, we're in the office. But I, I kind of really like loved that because I think it's, I, I've always been interested in substance and, and really getting to kind of, I guess, the heart of things rather than the style that sits on top of them. I thought the opportunity was really interesting um, and not the opportunity that sort of opportunity that comes around every day. And I think when it comes to making the transition from being an FD kind of or like the head of a finance as for a division of an organization. Um, it's actually quite hard to make the leap from that to being the number one finance person because like many things in life, when hiring is done, it's one of those things that people prefer to hire somebody who's been a number one before. So I knew that those kind of opportunities wouldn't come across along that often. And so whilst I wasn't really looking to leave Unilever at that point, I, I knew it might not come along soon again. And the people, the culture, what was being built, it just sounded like a really exciting opportunity that I didn't want to miss out on. And describe the crazy days when you joined. Um, I think your team was, what, like four or five people, analytics and finance. But how was it like in the early days compared to today? So... Uh, I mean, it was fascinating. So kind of, you know, coming uh, from an environment where, you know, there's whole teams of people uh, to, for example, look after recruitment or sort out your, you know, laptop, etc. you know, and turning up and it was really just like, just does that 40 people, 
Um, I remember, you know, Hamena like personally took me through everything I needed from an <laughs> office perspective, and that was done in a couple of hours. It all seemed super efficient. One of the things that most struck me in those first few days was how quickly we were able to do things. So I'd come from an environment where at Tesco, um, we looked at reducing the prices of um, the online slot um, tariffs. And it took us literally months to make that happen because it took a few weeks to get the data together. We then had to take it to a senior forum. When that was agreed there, we then had to take it to the next senior forum. Some time had passed, so we had to rerun the data, et cetera. And before you know it, like a few months have passed. Whereas at least, firstly, the data was available uh, in the most amazing form. Like it was literally just all there uh, for you to access. Um, and we could make decisions really, really quickly. So we agreed to do a price test um, one day. And I remember going home and thinking about it. And I kind of had another thought. And I came back the next day to say, oh, I wonder if we should do X. Um, and the team told me it was already live. <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Wow. Very fun, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing to be able to operate at that pace. Yeah, yeah. Kind of what has changed since then? What are the biggest changes now? Gusto is close to a thousand people when you join 41 people. So massive, massive growth. What has changed the most in your eyes? So, I mean, obviously, we like we've scaled hugely. And so we've had to, as a leadership team, really scale kind of what we do and how we do it and really professionalize. So there are a lot of things that can work when you're a small team even the basics of like communicating things. You don't need a process because there's so few people you can literally just get around a desk and chat. Whereas as you scale, you obviously do need to have processes to make sure you're communicating with everybody in the right way. And you have to, as leaders, kind of elevate uh, what you're getting involved in and make sure that you build a team around you that are strong enough um, to ensure that what needs to happen happens. Uh, without you necessarily getting involved in every detail. And how do you make a team work as a team? Like one of the biggest learnings for me has been this intense focus on the leadership team and then other teams across the business and how much you actually have to invest into them. How have you found that journey? Ideally, you need a combination of two things. So one is you need people who, as individuals, are really great at what they do are really passionate, they really own the area that they are looking after and can be trusted to deliver. Um, because it is by having those like capable individuals that kind of everyone else can trust them to get on with it. But for it to be really successful, that needs to be combined with a real sense of team so that you have a group of individual experts who come together and can achieve a lot more together um, than they do as individuals. And at Gusto, you know, we have an ownership principle Uh, one plus one equals three. And I really believe that. So for example, um, you know, if we want to uh, make a change to uh, one of our food policies, it's not something that one individual in my team can do. It's something where the buying director, the food director, you know, the head of food technical all need to come together to make happen. And so they have to be a strong team that want, you know, see, see a collective responsibility. Um, if you really want to deliver at pace. And one of the common kind of fears is that culture kind of dilutes over time as the company scales. Do you think today the culture is stronger than it was back then or, or weaker? How has it changed? 
So to be honest, I think we've got a much, a very similar culture to the culture that we had when I joined. But I think we've had to be much more deliberate and communicate much more clearly. So, so I think when I arrived at the culture, which, you know, that combination of, of dream, of people that really think big, who are innovative, who come up with solutions and combine with deliver. So people who really want to make things happen and then care. So working together collaboratively, you know, really treating people in the right way. Those three things were naturally there, but we hadn't defined them uh, particularly explicitly. We just were a group of people who acted in that way. Um, as we've grown, you know, we've, we've very clearly defined them. We make an opportunity to reinforce them out of having um, awards each quarter. They're documented. Uh, we name our meeting rooms after them. We call people out uh, when they are, you know, doing a particularly good job against one of those ownership principles. And so I think, I think the cultures are still there really strongly, but it's something we have to be more deliberate about. Uh, rather than just assuming it kind of sticks around. That's a great point. And not many people move uh, at your level of seniority, move from one job to another, and you successfully um, you know, raised so much money for Gusto as Gusto CFO. You massively professionalized our finance and analytics teams. You hired amazing people and empowered them. And then one day you moved to chief product officer. You know, what was the thought process back then? So that's really very kind. Thank you. So I think the thought process was, so firstly, um, I've always been a person that I guess enjoys a new challenge and, and to learn something new. And, you know, I absolutely, um, you know, wouldn't want to leave Gusto. And um, so it's great to have had the opportunity to move within Gusto to learn something new. Um, so, you know, it, it felt like a great opportunity to do something different. I also think from within finance, you know, the right uh, approach to finance involves you um, genuinely believing that you can have a big impact on, you know, the outcomes of what's going on in the business and really influence uh, what happens. But there are some things that are quite hard to, you know, influence as much as they are if you actually own them. And I think for these days, some of our meatiest and most valuable problems um, sat within the product arena You know, the decisions about what food we list, ensuring that our proposition really meets the needs of our customers, making sure that we prioritize um, our product changes in the order that kind of releases most value for our customers first. You know, all of those decisions are super key decisions for the business uh, and really interesting decisions. And, and it felt that I could have more impact on them and therefore more impact on the business through moving into product. Yeah, I totally agree. I felt super excited about the idea of moving one of the smartest, you know, and most driven people I've ever met in my life um, closer to the customer, and thereby kind of cutting through some of those really, really challenging trade-off discussions. You do this first for customers or that, which then impacts all of Gusto, um, including the long-term strategy and our, you know, big capex programs and so on. So it felt like a really um, pivotal moment um, strategically. I think. And what did you learn about boards and, and good boards, bad boards? You know, what, what kind of made the best discussions at board level? Really interesting question. So I think that um, as we have evolved as a company, I think what we've needed from the board has been different at different stages. Um, so I think in those very early years, when quite a few of our board directors were kind of early angels um, and 
um, you know, kind of early VC funds. There was a lot that we could get from, from those boards who had kind of portfolio, you know, a range of portfolio companies in their investment portfolio, um, meaning that they could really, A, share their experience from their other portfolio companies, but B, actually introduce us, uh, which was hugely valuable to us. And also just great to get advice from experts like Stephen Drazy, um, who was on our board for the first few years, who was a huge expert in the food arena, having worked for many, many years on that side of things. And obviously kind of food safety is like a hugely important thing to us as a business. I think as time evolved, it became more and more important that we had more independence um, in the directors. Um, so kind of, you know, really balancing those investor directors with um, true independent non-executive directors uh, who I think can bring an extra perspective, but also sort of genuine independence. And also, I think over time, as we've evolved over the business, you know, we've been able to produce better and better board packs, materials, et cetera, for the board. And, you know, the quality of the discussion is so often dependent on the quality of the materials produced. Um, so that's, you know, been a key learning. I think also, um, you know, really kind of focusing on like providing good pre-read and then having like meaty discussion feels much, much better use of time. Um, and I think in the early days, it tended to be kind of spending the whole time running through slides, which could have been shared as pre-read. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of more time for discussion is much, much more valuable when you get a group together. Yeah, fantastic points. Um, totally agree with them. And you've obviously hired so many people, not only across product and finance, but across all of Gusto. Are there any like clear kind of lessons learned from that? I think first and foremost, the culture and the inherent characteristics in an individual are just so important. Um, so somebody who has a growth mindset, somebody who is proactive, somebody who you know, is curious, wants to learn, wants to solve problems, and, and who thinks about people, you know, who cares. So that combination of IQ and EQ is so important. And so whilst obviously, ideally, you couple that with people um, who've got specific experience that's relative to a role, if I have to choose, I'd rather choose an individual with the right characteristics who can then learn some of the sort of, I suppose, skills, uh, rather than having someone who's got a perfect skill set. Um, perhaps less good at some of those other things that are so important. And I think you can be enormously proud of kind of the talent you've hired and also how much time and effort you invest into mentoring and coaching people across the organization. It's, it's truly appreciated. And what are some of the other things you're most proud of on, on this journey of almost five years or more four and a half years now? I mean, I'm really, really proud of the team that we've built. It's incredible. Uh, you know, as you said, you know, 41 people in total when we joined. I mean, we've now got, you know, at least 41 really experienced senior like leaders and, you know, and then a hugely committed group of in, and, and capable individuals uh, supporting that team um, in order to deliver every day. Um, so I think that's one of the key things. I'm really proud that we've managed to maintain our culture. I think it, it is really hard to maintain the kind of culture we've got as you scale, but I think we've done a really good job um, at making sure that that is preserved. I'm really proud of the value that we've created and the fact that we've been able to help so many people 
um, at what's been a difficult time for the UK recently to be able to eat and not just eat any food, but eat great food. I love the fact that we've been able to have a positive impact on the planet, not only from a health perspective, so that food that customers are eating by cooking from scratch um, really helps them to live healthier and, and hopefully longer lives, but also from a sustainability perspective, we've eliminated more than 50% of the plastic that was originally in the box out of the box. And, and we've done that by, you know, coming up with like completely new ideas and solutions to problems that had never been solved before anywhere. Um, so things like the created egg box packaging, uh, the way that we kind of keep uh, products cool, um, our eco chill box, um, you know, those things were kind of world firsts and they are having a massive impact environmentally. Um, so just really great to be kind of having built a great team a really great financial model, um, but one that is really good for the planet um, and that is genuinely sustainable. Yeah, super, super powerful points and so incredibly proud of the team for making all of that happening. Let me also ask if you had a magic wand, would you change anything? That's a really interesting question. The journey you know, from startup to kind of uh, scaled up business is, is really hard and it's, it involves a huge amount of resilience. You know, there are so many amazing moments, but there are also moments that are really tough and, and they're tough because, you know, we're trying to achieve so much with a relatively small number of people and because we're ambitious. And so, you know, we want to do things really well. You know, it's, it's almost like I'd like to be able to go and reassure my younger self you know, that it's going to be okay. Because I think that, you know, there have been moments on the journey that have felt, you know, tougher than others. But it's always okay in the end. You know, we always get through those tough moments and we come out the other side stronger. If a magic wand could take away those moments, well, that probably wouldn't be good because we learn from those moments and they make us stronger. No, it's a great point. But um, yeah, I also acknowledge how difficult it has been at times, you know, handling the growth and, and the relentless um, pressure it puts on people. And what did you learn about yourself? What energizes you? How do you cope with resilience um, topics when things get tougher? What kind of energizes you as a person? So I think it's really natural for people who like to do things well and like to get stuff done. Uh, to end up, uh, if they're not careful, literally working all the time, but ending up being less effective. And I think that's because there's, there's always more that you can do in, in you know, this kind of scale-up environment. And so I think I've had to learn to really ruthlessly prioritize um, in order to kind of fit everything in a number of hours that is manageable. I've had to learn to... Uh, make sure that I take time to, I guess, effectively de-stress. Um, so for me, doing regular exercise. Um, so kind of that's running. Uh, some people will probably say like jogging because I'm not very fast. But uh, that kind of regular exercise uh, several times a week is hugely important. And carving out time just for me and for my family means that then when I am at work the rest of the time, I think I am kind of much more able to operate at a much better level in a much more positive way and in a way that then have a positive impact on the people around me. And I really think what you just said kind of sets, you know, successful leaders apart from people who struggle 
on the journey and eventually drop out. It's this focus on self-awareness, what actually energizes yourself and how do you then build mechanisms. But obviously, it's really difficult at times. And do you still feel like you're learning? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the really great thing about these day is that because the business is almost unrecognizable from one year to the next and we're growing just so fast, the actual role I'm doing tends to be like hugely different. And, you know, that gives so many opportunities to learn every day, just in terms of kind of, you know, how to step up and, and lead at the next level. Uh, once you've sort of got kind of more um, capable leaders recruited, how to tackle a problem where, you know, previously you were only dealing with, as you said, 40 employees, but, you know, now close to a thousand. And, and so you're constantly having to kind of reinvent, which involves a huge amount of learning. I'm glad you think so. I I feel like I literally learn so much every day from every person in the business and outside. Um, It's just crazy how much the company is changing every single year um, since revenues are still doubling. And, you know, we've come such a long way. But what's really clear to me is, is that the, the opportunity over the next 10 years is even bigger. But why do you think some of the scale-ups fail? And what do you think is the biggest risk we as a company face in the next, whatever, five to 10 years? In terms of uh, businesses failing, I mean, obviously, some, some businesses don't necessarily have the right product or, or the right demand. And so eventually, they kind of run out of customers. Uh, we are very privileged to be in a market where, you know, there's a billion uh, meals being eaten in the UK every single day. At the moment, we're only scratching the surface on, on the sort of market share of that. And um, so there's no, no danger at all of us kind of, I suppose, running out of customers to go after, uh, which is great. You know, a lot of businesses struggle to move from kind of small startup to larger scale businesses, you know, and they have a lot of growing pains. Um, and I think that's often because they don't scale the people effectively ahead of the curve because you sort of have to get the people in place to ensure that the next stage of the journey is successful. Um, and so that really is kind of one of our biggest focuses as a business, um, making sure that we're scaling our teams effectively. The other piece is, to some extent, you never know. And so there is always some luck involved. You know, we currently at the moment are in, in a very lucky position not to be one of the businesses that, that's struggling as a result of coronavirus. And, you know, it's a hugely sad situation for the world generally. Uh, you know, very, very sad for any of the individuals that are affected by coronavirus. And, but also very, very hard for a lot of businesses who, you know, for no fault of their own, happen to be um, in a market that is finding it harder to trade at the moment. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're very lucky and privileged to be in the position that we're in. And, you know, it's really important that we build the resilience to ensure that, you know, if something similar were to happen in the food industry, that we were ready um, to react to that. Yeah, fantastic point. I just can't imagine. I mean, 9.6 million people are furloughed. It's almost a third of the working population. We are so incredibly fortunate and blessed um, hiring another thousand people over the next 12, 18 months. So yeah, huge, huge luck in the journey as well. Um, Sally, thank you so much. It's been a huge privilege to have you as a partner on this journey. And I really, really loved learning even more about you today on this podcast. So thank you for taking uh, the time. Uh, no problem. And thanks very much. It's been great to chat.